Um, welcome to, as Claire said, our last service at the Classic Theater of Maryland. Um, before we get started, I do want to just say that for me, um, as I think about leaving this place, that this is a place that is always going to be connected to a deep sense of hope um, in my heart as the pastor here. Uh, we came here to Classic Theater as a church of probably 25 or 30 people um, during the worst days of the pandemic. And back then we wondered, um, honestly, if we were going to survive as a church and if our community here in Annapolis still held any real curiosity for the kind of church um, that revolution aspires to be, frankly. But over the last 15 months since we've been here, we've seen not just growth in numbers of people attending, but we've also seen so many stories of people who are looking for a place just like this one to connect and to heal and to discover or rediscover the actual warmth of God as it can be manifested in a healthy church community. And the result has been a true rebirth of this church, I think, into a thriving body of people who love each other and who show up for each other and who want to share the comfort and the love of a God that they feel as much as the God that they know. And it's an incredible privilege, we're off script now, like, but it's an incredible privilege not just to lead that kind of church, but also just to belong to that kind of church myself. Like This is what I've been looking for, and I'm grateful, um, I'm really grateful for the chance to be here. And I'm also excited about the places that God is going to lead us to next. Um, at Mills Parole, M-I-L-L-S hyphen, P-A-R-O-L-E, is the word we keep saying, because I realized as I was listening to Claire say that, I was like, Mills Parole can sound like all sorts of things. It could be like Caterpillar. Like, you don't know what word this is. Just be long. Mills Parole. But we'll have signs. If you go down Chinkapen, right across the street, you'll see it. Anyways, um, so by good luck and by God's grace, um, this point about the classic theater here actually is a point that connects nicely, nicely to what we're here to talk about this morning. What we're doing is we're wrapping up a study on the Apostles' Creed that we've actually been working on all year long. And the Apostles' Creed, which we read just a moment ago, is an ancient text that is intended to help Christians remember what they profess to believe, as well as where those beliefs might lead them, a tool for helping us remember the things that we profess to believe. It is, in at least a metaphorical sense, a kind of base map of our faith. It is drawn from the handful of church teachings which have the capacity to extend beyond the particulars of Christian belief which often divide us and includes only the things that are unmissably true for people who are anchored in the life and the teachings of Jesus. In this way, the Apostles' Creed is not a complete survey of what Christians sometimes believe. There are many very practical doctrines and many practical dogmas which don't appear here. But it is an overview of where our hope comes from as Christians, of who all is central to that hope, and what that hope is ultimately going to accomplish in the world. So for the last six sermons in this series, which is spread out all year long, we focused on those first two things. We focused on the where that we see in the creed and the who. And we're going to kind of wrap it, walk us back through. So 
At the beginning, we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, which is a way of saying that there is a source for this journey that we are on. Believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, which is a belief that entails that God came to where we are, right, for his own good purposes. And that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, who descended even to the dead. And what we see here is that rather than conquer this broken world as a king, which is a thing Jesus certainly could have done, Jesus instead is the kind of God who chooses humiliation and chooses suffering and even death, feeling the very worst of what the world can be, descending to the very bottom of human experience. And then we profess that on the third day, Jesus rose again, and in doing so breaks through this veil of fear Right, that surrounds us, not just so that we might ultimately see who he is, but so that we can trust right, who he says he loves, that he loves us enough to descend to the worst of our experiences and then to conquer them, and in doing so, to sort of free us from the fear that keeps us paralyzed when it comes to the ways that we love others. So at this point, then, Jesus, we profess, ascended into heaven, to take the place that he rightly deserves by God's side, and now, now complete with the deep empathy of his experience, of his suffering and his love, he will judge the living and the dead, not with the cold detachment of authority, right, but that he will judge us with the sensitive compassion of a God who is with us in our hardships and in our weakness and in our pain. This is our God we've talked about this year. One who possesses power beyond comprehension, but a God who nonetheless chooses to identify with weakness. To possess power and identify with weakness. So the creed tells us all this. It tells us who God is. And then it goes on to tell us where God is still working, right? The creed says that we believe that God is within us as spirit. That he is among us as a united and holy church. And that he is around us even through the communion of believers, past, present, and future. And then, in the last lines, which are the lines we're going to study this morning, the creed tells us the what. Like what God's project in the world ultimately promises to do. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, than life everlasting. So our project today is to figure out what do those three things mean? What basis do we have for believing them? And how can our beliefs change us, right? change our community here in Annapolis, and then even change the world? I said earlier that the creed is a bit like a map. And here's kind of the big question for us this morning, because those questions I just asked, I know are like preacher questions. They're hazy. They don't mean anything yet. You know they'll mean something later, but right now they're just blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to focus this in on a question that we can connect to. And the question is, what exactly do maps do? What do maps do? It's fun to ask that question because I'm looking around and there are like five of you who love maps as much as I do, and you all went, and the rest of you were like, Over the years, I've told a million stories about traveling, right? Almost all of my pastor stories are traveling stories. If you know me, you know that my family and I are, like, in love with national parks. It's our whole, our whole deal that we love to hike. 
But what you might not know, although you probably do, because I've probably preached on this a million times too, is that almost as much as I love hiking or walking, I love driving. Well, let me be clear. I love driving under a particular set of circumstances, right? Those circumstances do not include driving on I-95 through Northern Virginia, as I've done twice in the last week, um, which is not cool. That is never fun. But I'll take just about any road in any road trip west of the Mississippi. Get me to the west of the Mississippi, and I'll drive anywhere. Well, California along the coast also pass. But like anywhere between <laughs> L.A. and the Mississippi River, I'll drive. The emptier spaces that are out there, they do something wonderful, I think, for map lovers like me and the five of you who nodded earlier. And that is that places like that shift our focus, I think, from efficiency to adventure. They shift our focus from efficiency to adventure. Every time that I plan a trip, I get obsessive about routes, like seriously obsessive. I have a big atlas at home and I get it out and what I do is I circle where I'm starting from on any given day in a trip and I circle where I'm going at the end of the day and then my eyes start looking on the map for little green boxes, right? Any green patches or green boxes because those boxes, those green spots indicate parks or national monuments or forests or wilderness areas, which is to say they indicate places that might be beautiful. And so once I find the little green boxes between where I want to go, where I'm starting and where I'm going, the real fun begins because then I look for the thinnest gray lines that connect all those boxes together because what I want are like county roads. I want like state highways. What I do not want ever are interstates. Never ever do I want to drive on an interstate because for me, if I'm going to drive from like point A to point B, I want to enjoy the places that I pass through on the way. Uh, important note, my family does not care at all about this. They tolerate it, so they don't get mad anymore that I do it, but they do not care. They sleep and they ignore everything, but I care. And maps are a key part of all of this. And initially a map is important because it's the tool I use to help me find that route that I wanna take. But also I would argue that a map is a key part of the journey itself, because if you're traveling by maps, you're constantly checking and rechecking those maps. I do not trust GPS, not because I don't think it will get me where I want to go, but because it has a different agenda than I have. The GPS's agenda is speed, right? But I don't want speed, I want beauty. And if I'm going to ignore that GPS and find my own way, then I can't just like wake up in the morning, like think, oh, I'll take this road, this road, this road, and then get there. I have to keep checking that map all day long to figure out where I'm at and where I'm going. All right, you've been sufficiently entertained that you're starting to wonder, where is this going? <laughs> Simply this, this is what I wanna say. Using a map is an active and engaging process. It's an active and engaging process. It's not something that you look at once, see where you're going, and then forget about it. It's something that you, or at least I, get excited about exploring. And if the Apostles' Creed is a Christian map, a map of who we worship, what we believe, and where those beliefs will lead us. I don't want you to memorize the map and forget it. What I want is for you to use the map to explore. So, what do these last three clauses in the Apostles' Creed tell us about where we're going and some of the sites that we can see and explore along the way? The first of them 
states this, that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. But whose sins and why and even to what end? In the Old Testament of the Bible, we see almost immediately in the book of Genesis that the people God has created have been created with the capacity to act apart from his intentions for them. This behavior, right, is what we call sin. It is any unhuman action that a human undertakes. That's a nice definition. If you're a definition person, you should scribble that down. An unhuman action, that's what sin is. And the first sin, the first unhuman action is divorce from God. And this is sin that's committed by Adam and Eve when they choose independence and isolation to go their own way, right? Instead of belonging to God in his plan in the Garden of Eden. And then after divorce from God, we get lying, right? They lie about what happened. And that's a behavior that we watch in Genesis. We see how that isolates us from each other. It's an isolating action to lie. And then at the end of the Adam and Eve story, we get murder, right, which takes that isolation from each other to its ultimate extreme, like the full isolation of myself from somebody else, even from being on the same earth living with them. And according to God, once the seeds of these unhuman actions have been sown in humankind, they are bound to keep sprouting up everywhere in all of us all the time. And so we profess in our faith that, that we are sinners. I am a sinner because from time to time, I behave in unhuman ways. I wish I didn't, but I do. And I love all of you, but you are also people who behave unhumanly at times. I've seen it in some cases, but even if I haven't seen it, like I know that it is true that at times you make unhuman choices that isolate you from others and isolate you from God. We might not, we might not mean to do those things, right? We rarely mean to. But what happens, right, is we choose a road that doesn't get to the destination that we wanted to go to at the beginning of things, and instead takes us somewhere difficult, takes us somewhere that is ultimately fatal. But those particulars about sin aren't the things that we profess in the creed. What we profess is that sin, no matter how far down the wrong road it has taken us, is a thing that can be forgiven. That's the focus of the creed. Our car, in other words, can be picked up wherever it is, like in whatever terrible situation you've gotten yourself into, your car can be picked up and then set back down on the route that God has intended for you. Now, how can that happen? How does that moving of your car from the bad road to the good road happen? Well, in the New Testament, Jesus tells his disciples a great mystery during his last meal with them. He takes a glass of wine and he says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The wine is his blood of a covenant. Now we've talked about covenant many times here before, and I'm not gonna overburden things this morning, but I will say this, the covenant is one of those green spaces on your map that you can pause and that you can explore when you're ready. There's lots of interesting stuff there. But for our purposes today, instead what I'm gonna simply say is that what Jesus is proclaiming here is that somehow, by his own sacrificial work, by his will and what he will do, a way to get back on the path that you meant, are meant to be on is made possible. That he is the one who will do that. What sin has broken, what your unhuman choices have broken, he will repair. The willful and 
the not-so-willful mistakes that have led you to wherever it is you are are things that can be undone. So sin can, and we profess when we read the creed, sin will be forgiven. Now, that might give us kind of the skeleton of our root, right? We know that we want to arrive at this destination of like the forgiveness of sin. But what about all the map checking that we do along the way? How, in other words, do we savor the journey to the forgiveness of sin? How do we enjoy the drive? This is also a question that Jesus prepares his disciples to explore. After Jesus does the atoning work, the forgiving work on the cross, atonement, another green area you can play around in one day when you want to. After he does that work, after the blood of the covenant is poured out, he appears again to his followers and he tells them this. Again, Jesus said, this is from John 20, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, at first glance, I would contend this stretch of road sounds foreboding, doesn't it? It is a lot of pressure. It seems like Jesus is saying, that I am responsible for the forgiveness of sins, of other people's sins. I don't want to be in charge of that, frankly. But what's really happening here? I think we can notice that before Jesus gives this command, right, before he commends the job of forgiveness to his disciples, he breathes on them in this moment, and the text says that the disciples receive the Holy Spirit. And it's worth noting that the discussion of the Holy Spirit also prefaces this article in the creed. And so, even though what Jesus says is that we bear a responsibility, you can't get away from his words here, he says that we bear a responsibility for forgiveness, he also is insisting before he gives us that job that we don't have to travel alone. The formula we find in the New Testament is bold and hard, but it's clear. The New Testament teaches us that forgiven people know how to forgive. Forgiven people know how to forgive. As we experience forgiveness, as we feel God's spirit in us, which has come into us, convicting us, and as it convicts us, we learn how to repent of our own mistakes, of our unhuman actions. And then through this whole process, we also are invited to taste the sweetness of forgiveness of real forgiveness for the mistakes that we've made. We get to taste the sweetness of God's grace and his love for us, even when we have accepted and seen the ways that we don't deserve it. And the idea seems to be that when that happens, this thing that can sound like a burden, right, that you have to go around forgiving people's sins, this thing that can sound terrifying a little bit, is something that the text is telling us can become a delight can become a delightful way of responding to what you have received. A winding mountain road through the fall, that's what forgiveness and living a life of forgiveness can be, right? A highway following the cliff beside the ocean, that's what forgiveness can be. It's not a fast route, right? But it's a beautiful one. So it's worth asking, right? Have you ever really experienced forgiveness? Have you ever seen a mistake that you have made, like for all that it actually is, and felt 
the weight of it. Not like, I know I've made a mistake, but I've filled my head with all the excuses and reasons why I made it. But have you ever seen a mistake you've made like in its awfulness, like in its nakedness, with no excuses? And then in feeling that awareness of your own mistake, felt like you were literally drowning. Like there's no way back to the place that you were before in this relationship, in this, I mean, for me, they are all parenting mistakes that are coming to mind. Things that I've done absolutely wrong with my kids and thought like, there it is. Like I can pay for counseling one day, but that's as far as, this is all I can do to fix this. <coughs> and then have you ever heard this person that you have wronged like tell you that it's okay? Like not just tell you that they forgive you, but like be affectionate to you, hug you, reassure you, show you with their love that this thing that seemed impossible to fix can actually be fixed. This is a rare thing for any of us to ever feel. But if you have felt and experienced it, you know it's a transcendent thing to experience and feel. And it's something that God can and will do, we believe, each and every time that you ask for it. Every time. A thousand times you make the same mistake. And a thousand times when you own that mistake and seek his forgiveness, he pours love out for you. It's something that overflows from who he is. So when we say that forgiven people know how to forgive, we're not just stating some like ultimate abstract destination on a journey. We're saying that our life in Christ can be full right now of forgiveness. We can be people who delight in repentance, who delight in owning our mistakes, who are eager to be humble and to own mistakes. And we can live that way because we believe that being forgiven, not just believe, we have experienced that being forgiven is a miracle. And if we're living like that with our God, if we're living transparently, confessing our sin to our God, feeling the delight and the overflow of his loving forgiveness for us, if that's how we're interacting with him, then the question becomes, what is keeping us from having that same kind of interaction with each other? What if we as a people were just as eager to repent of the ways that we wound each other as we are privately when we pray to God? Because a lot of us can be very repentant with God and then not so repentant with people in our lives. But what if it wasn't that way? What if we were just as excited to forgive other people as God seems to be to keep forgiving us? Wouldn't a life like that, interacting with other people like that, loving other people like that, wouldn't that be richer? Wouldn't that be a more beautiful drive to the destination? We can believe in the forgiveness of sins, not just as something that's happening at the end of our journey. One day it's all going to be okay, but it's something we can believe in and practice and savor every day along the way of that journey. The other two articles here at the Creed can work in just the same way. We profess that we believe in the resurrection of the body. Yes, that is the destination. That's a eventually we get there in our faith. One glorious day, everybody who has passed from this life 
and from life into this world, every loved one that you have, every enemy that you have, every friend, every foe, is going to follow the path that Jesus has paved for all of us, a path Jesus makes tangible instead of abstract, spiritual existence, but now, but, I'm sorry, turning us, I'm sorry, well, I lost where I was because I got excited about something, <laughs> and now the grammar is just a wreck. Simpler sentences is the lesson. What I'm trying to say is that everybody is going to follow this path Jesus made, not to some abstract spiritual existence, which may be how you were raised, but it's not what the Bible describes, not to some abstract spiritual existence, but to new bodily life right here in this world. This is why Jesus invites his disciples to touch his flesh, right? To hear his actual voice. And as we talked about last week, even to feed him food, which seems like an unnecessary detail, unless we're trying to make the point that this body of his isn't a ghost body, it's not a spirit body, it's a real body. He wants to prove this point, that actual resurrected life is the destination you're headed towards. It will happen. But a place I think we get lost is when we consider the body we currently have. Is this thing that I currently have just something to abuse or hate or disrespect along the way because all I think I'm supposed to care about is this thing that I'm going to get one day, something at the end of the road? Like, of course not. That's not the kind of life we're made for. In his letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul talks a lot to those people about bodies. It seems like this was a real concern for the people in Corinth, particularly when it came to resurrection. They had a lot of questions. And in chapter 15, Paul goes into great detail about resurrection bodies, another green space to explore if you want to, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and the ways that they will transcend the hunger and the weakness and the frailty of the bodies that we now have. But before he gets into all the stuff about what the heavenly bodies will be, he tells them this amazing thing about the body they currently have. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Not the future body you'll get, but the body that you have right now. Your body right now matters to God. In fact, your body right now is indwelt by God. Now, I am nearly 42 years old. It will be in a month and a half. And I think we can all agree that I look 50, right? <laughs> and I will tell you something personal. I have never liked my body. Maybe you can relate. But I will also tell you that at 41, which my age now, when I look back at pictures of myself at 31 or at 21, which were also moments that I remember I did not love myself well, I look at those pictures and think, I wish I had that body. <laughs> and you know what? I'll bet that when I'm 51, I will think about the body I have now and think the same things. So here is my resolution for my 42nd year. I want to love it while I got it. My body is awesome. It's amazing. It moves. It tastes good food. I just did that too much. It smiles. It speaks. It hugs, although rarely. I'm not really a hugger, as some of you know. But it's nice when it happens. But more than all that, right, God lives in this body. God lives in this body. I want to learn to take better care of it not because I'm trying to earn something in the future at the end of the road. I want to take good care of it because I ought to love the gift that I've been given now. The last claim in the creed, I think, works the same way. 
I believe in life everlasting. Not an end to this crappy existence and the start of something new on a cloud somewhere one day. I believe in life everlasting. Life. In other words, I believe in the thing that we have now. On the night before he he died, Jesus prayed to his father and he said this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. If you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, not roads of gold, life on a cloud, heart. This, that you know God and know his son. It's another destination, right? Jesus is saying, bring these people back to their intimate knowledge of you before that divorce. Bring them back to their intimate knowledge of you. But it is also, I think more than anything else we've talked about, a journey to savor and to enjoy. Life everlasting is an infinitely deepening experience of the love and the nature of God. Life everlasting begins when you start experiencing life with him. And that life doesn't have to wait until you die one day, right? Or until Jesus descends from a cloud. The hope and the joy of Jesus' entire being, the thing he prays to his father about in these, like, these last moments that, he's, that his words are being recorded, the thing he wants us to know is that life everlasting starts now. Not then, it starts now. It is meeting him, the same guy these people met and knew. It is being loved by him now, not then, but now. Through him, our life everlasting with God begins today. It's begun. And so what a sad thing it is to start this relationship with Jesus and then spend your whole life fixating only on the finish line. To have met him, to have been baptized into relationship with him, even, and then to care only about the destination that you're trying to get to. But I think that's what we do. We choose Christian faith at some point, right? Because we grew up with it, or because we found it convincing as, a, as an argument or a worldview at some point, or maybe because we felt moved at youth camp about it one day, and, and then we decided to sign up. And then we, like, metaphorically here, we get in the car with Jesus, we, like, buckle our seatbelt, and then we just, like, stare out the window or get on our phone. He tries to talk to us, and we ignore him, and are just like, just get us there, Jesus. Like, just drive. Just drive. Like, this now is everlasting life. Our time is short, so please just let me say this. Your life with God is meant to be enjoyed. This journey is meant to bring you deep delight. It's meant to give you a taste of heaven now. God shares forgiveness with you now so that you can learn how good it feels to be forgiven and get excited about the opportunities you might have in your life to forgive others. 
God shares this body with you now so that you can learn to love what it feels like to be alive in it and to see your own beauty through his eyes. And God shares this life with you now. Jesus shares this life with you now so that you can get this glimpse of eternity before it's too late to invite more people into the car, right? God loves you not just because of who you might be one day. He loves you because of who you are now. He wants to travel with you. He wants you to travel with him. And he doesn't want you just to fixate on where this is all headed. He wants you to love the journey that you're on. So when we say the words of the creed, I think what we can conclude is that they have the power to clear away the stuff that distracts us and remind us of where we're going and encourage us to delight in how we actually get there. God is so good. May we keep learning how wonderful a thing it is to be loved by him and how joyous it can be to love others like him.